our nation's transportation infrastructure has gone begging for money for too long. Is this the year when the federal wallet will finally open? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. Roads, highways, and bridges are in desperate need of repair and new construction. Yet there's been no increase in the federal gas tax, which funds the Highway Trust Fund, since 1993. Since then, we've seen growing cases of congestion and even deaths that were the fault of a crumbling system, one that's completely inadequate to handle the volume of passengers and freight today. Time to discuss options. My guest today is Joshua Shank, President and CEO of the Eno Center for Transportation. He takes a look at the various ideas for new funding sources and offers his opinion about the validity and saleability of each one. Shockingly, he declares himself to be optimistic about the prospects for movement this year, or at least the beginnings of it. A window of opportunity has opened, he says. So here is my conversation with Joshua. Shank. Joshua Shank, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me. Judging from your latest Eno Center for Transportation brief, it sounds like you actually are a little bit positive about the prospects in 2014 for a new authorization bill that would finally pay for necessary transportation improvements. Is that a correct representation of your mood at this moment? Well, I don't know if I would say I'm optimistic that it will happen in 2014, but I think I'm optimistic that it will begin to happen in 2014 and that people are going to be talking about it and that they're going to be serious about trying to find revenue mechanisms that could actually fund the bill. Yeah, you're talking about several positive movements. Let's run those down real quickly. The American Reinvestment and Recovery Act um, included the TIGER grants, which have been used with some success, I guess, to improve transportation. So that's an important element to start with. Yeah, what the TIGER program did is it showed that the federal government could play an important and substantial role in fostering innovation in transportation, and particularly in providing funding to freight improvements um, in a way that it hadn't really done before. Uh, you know, Most of the funding that has been distributed by the federal government for transportation in the surface sector has been through formula, and it has been directed towards singular modes particularly highways and public transit. And this was the first time they tried to do a multimodal discretionary grant program and, uh, and, and target the funds towards where they could have the greatest impact based on specific performance measures that were developed for the TIGER uh, evaluation process. And the result was that freight came out very well, not surprisingly, because when you look at things from a national perspective, you would expect a substantial amount of investment be going 
to freight. It just hasn't been in the past because we haven't had programs like this. But Tiger is, uh, has been an example of how such a program could work. It's proven to be remarkably popular and continued to be authorized despite the tremendous gridlock in Congress and budget pressures uh, since it was first passed in 2008. So it's a, it's a really good sign that something positive uh, is happening in this area. Yeah, you said it uh, should be no surprise that freight got such of, uh, so much funding out of that. But on the other hand, freight does not have a very high public profile, often has to compete with other needs, especially even on the transportation side, passenger transportation, bicycle paths, public transit, stuff like that. So I guess it shouldn't be a slam dunk that commercial transportation should get that much attention. Well, it's not a slam dunk from a political perspective, and it's not a slam dunk slam dunk from a media perspective in the sense that it's never going to be the sexiest issue. But it is more of a slam dunk when you look at things from a performance and outcome perspective. And that's what was different about Tiger, is that instead of saying – Let's give out money to where we're getting the most pressure from our constituents to give money or from local officials to give money. They were saying, let's give out money where we see the greatest uh, benefit-cost ratio from a national perspective in terms of the goals we're trying to achieve. And that's why freight did well. And, and as long as we continue to look at things that way, freight will continue to do well. Okay, then we have MAP 21, moving ahead for progress in the 21st century, passed in the summer of 2012. What is the significance of that? Well, MAP 21 did a number of things uh, that were uh, helpful, um, not all of them related to freight, uh, but one of the big ones was that they specified in MAP 21, Congress specified performance measures and national goals by which they would evaluate investments in the future. And those among those goals included uh, trying to provide for the, the economic benefits that occur from, from effective freight movements. And having that specified means a lot. But even beyond that, the, those more general improvements in MAP 21 um, Congress made specific gestures that said, look, we're going to think about freight as a more serious issue, particularly by creating this, uh, this freight advisory committee, um, which is at USDOT, and by continuing the Projects of National and Regional Significance Program, which, although it was not funded with direct authorization money in, this, uh, in MAP 21, it still exists, and it's there as a kind of a placeholder that's saying, look, we're going to try to do something with freight when we figure out how to fund it. And it's something that, um, that members of Congress keep talking about and keep referring to as an example of how we might be able to uh, put together a freight program in the future. Okay, so we're inching toward a national freight policy of some kind. Most recently, we have the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, a special panel reporting back on 21st century freight transportation. The sponsors of that were all over themselves in a press conference, how excited they sounded about we have finally made some progress. Did they have cause to cheer? Well, I'll tell you, it was, it was surprising to me the level of consensus that occurred uh, in that report. Because, you know, when we were talking to Congress prior to MAP 21 and saying, look, we really need to have a freight program and here's what it should look like and here's why it's important, we encountered all kinds of resistance to that. Well, one of the reasons for that resistance was that there's no money. And so when there's no money, people don't want to start creating new programs. But another reason for that resistance is that there was a real feeling that uh, if you're going to do freight, that basically means highways. 
And so they, the, the easiest thing to do was to create a new form of the program directing uh, money towards highways for freight purposes. And we thought that was a really bad idea because if you just give out money by formula and you're just giving it to highways, you're not really confronting the problem. Freight investments, as you know, need to be very targeted. They need to be multimodal. They need to be focused on bottlenecks, and you're not going to accomplish that with a formula program. So when this House uh, panel came out with their report, what we liked about it is they seemed to recognize that. They seemed to recognize that this isn't just let's give out some more money for highways and call it freight. This is let's do a multimodal uh, discretionary grant program for freight as a centerpiece of a national freight program where investments are targeted towards national needs. I was surprised to see that, but very pleasantly surprised because I think it's a huge step in the right direction and shows that there's a real recognition among Congress that this is something that they need to do and that they're starting to understand the way that they need to do it in order to be effective. Okay, so that's a positive step. MAP 21 is a positive step. The American Reinvestment and Recovery Act was a temporary positive step. But here we are have a small oversight, I guess, and that is how are we going to pay for all this, which, of course, is topic A. I'd like to run down with you some of the options that are out there and have you talk about which ones you think are the best or worst or pros or cons. Let's start with the, uh, the idea of greater use of tolling. Good idea or bad? I, I hate to say bad only because I, there are some things I like about this concept, but when it comes to paying for a freight program, I think it's a bad idea. And the reason I think it's a bad idea for freight is that, number one, your biggest freight providers hate the idea. Right, so truckers, uh, individual owner operators, as well as, as large trucking companies, um, are not uh, happy about the concept that they would be paying for tolls. And uh, you know, I, I understand where their frustration comes from, particularly for owner operators who are paying it out of their pockets a lot of times and kept coming right off their bottom line. That's a real impact, and they would much rather see uh, the, those uh, funds come from elsewhere. So I, I get that, and also. When you have funding for a freight program derived from tolls, you're basically saying that freight is just about highways. And, and again, as I mentioned earlier, if freight's going to be just about highways, we're going to be in a lot of trouble because we can't provide enough capacity on highways to accommodate freight demand. Um, and it's not necessarily the most cost-effective way of accommodating freight demand. We have to do a multimodal set of investments. So. Um, I think that when it comes to select urban highways that have capacity problems where you can use tolls to manage demand more effectively, tolling is a great idea. But when it comes to trying to pay for a large system, some places where there's a lot of demand and some places where there's not that much demand, um, you probably don't want to use tolls because they're not going to be uh, tailored as effectively to a system like that. And that's partly why truckers oppose them, but it's also uh, why, realistically, it would be very challenging to fund a national system based on tolls. Yeah, although we seem to be incrementally moving in that direction, a, a highway here, a, a former freeway there, a bridge here. I just wonder if we were going to wake up one morning and suddenly realize that a good, port a good portion of this nation's infrastructure is suddenly tolled, and we didn't even see it coming because it would just happen so gradually. I think that that is the trend, and in some ways there, there are reasons to support that trend, particularly, as, uh, as I said, in urban areas where you have congested freeways. But that's not a national system. Um, that's not a system of 
uh, of freight that uh, we're, we're maximizing our opportunities to move freight most effectively, reduce the bottom line, uh, you know, really cut costs and provide uh, economic growth for the nation. That's just a hodgepodge of opportunistically trying to collect revenue uh, on a state-by-state or, or sometimes locality-by-locality basis, uh, and that's no way to run a national system. So there are real problems with that, uh, that approach. If we're going to move towards a tolling approach, which I'm not recommending for this, but if we were to do it, at least it should be uh, driven in part by the federal government so that there's some systematic nature to it. Let's move on to the gas tax and the diesel tax. We have the odd uh, situation here of an industry, or at least the American Trucking Associations, asking to be taxed higher than they are now, balanced with the fact that there are certain forces in Congress that are opposed to anything that even comes close to the word tax. Do we need to finally increase the gas tax and the diesel tax as at least a partial means of funding transportation infrastructure? Well, it's certainly the uh, easiest way to fund our nation's transportation system. Um, not setting aside the politics of it, it's the easiest way from a technical standpoint. It's already in place. Um, it's a it's something that can be done uh, very easily and a very low cost, and can generate sufficient revenues to to fund our transportation system effectively. Um, that said, there are a lot of challenges uh, associated with, with trying to use the diesel tax or a gas tax to fund the transportation network. Number one uh, being that, again, this is a revenue source that is coming from one mode. And anytime you're trying to collect from one mode, uh, you're going to have a challenge when you try to fund a multimodal system just collecting from one mode. Because anytime you try to use those funds for anything but that one mode, they're likely to protest. And I can assure you that the American Trucking Associations, while they are very excited about the possibility of a diesel tax increase or may be excited about that, they are not excited about having any of that money going to rail um, and going to their competitors. Uh, they are much more interested in having that tax, diesel tax be solidified as a, uh, a component of highway investment. Uh, and that's the only way that they would agree to such a tax increase. So that's the, the, the number one problem. The second problem with it is that politically it's, it's very, very difficult. And uh, the reason for that is that people resonate with the idea of uh, gas taxes being a bad idea because everybody, almost everybody, buys gasoline. And almost everybody buys gasoline as an additional out-of-pocket cost that is not a regular bill like your electric bill, but rather something that every once in a while you have to go and pay, and you see exactly how much you're paying, and the prices are posted everywhere, and people are very sensitive to gas prices. So it's not something that's popular, uh, not that any tax is popular, but it's not uh, something that resonates with people when you come to them and say, here's how we're going to pay for X, to say, and we're going to raise the price of gasoline. So uh, you know, just to give a quick illustration of that, um, in the last presidential election, people were asked about their top five issues that they cared about in the presidential election, and I can assure you that transportation, and particularly freight, did not make the list of the top five issues. Uh, that's not something people think about when they're voting for president, but what did make the top five issues was gas prices, and that is something people think about, and they do look to the federal government to keep the price of gas down. Um, so if you're going to them and saying, we're going to tax this, thing that you really hate paying more for, um, that's going to be a big political lift. And that's why we haven't seen a gas tax in increase 
since 1993, and why even that increase, as well as the one before it, were actually targeted towards deficit reduction rather than transportation spending. Yeah, and would a, an effective gas tax, if it were increased now or in the future, would it have to be indexed to inflation in order to have it realistically pay for what it needs to pay for in the years ahead? Well, it depends on how much you could raise it. Um, you know, indexing a tax to inflation uh, has not proven to be necessarily the easiest thing to do, and some of the states that have attempted it have had some challenges when they've done that. But a better strategy that some people have recommended has been to um, to, to change it to an ad valorem tax uh, rather than uh, rather than a, a flat tax. Uh, that's something that Senator Boxer, or Chairman Boxer, who, who heads up the Environment Public Works Committee in the Senate and and who has a strong influence on the transportation bill, obviously, um, has has mentioned as a possibility. So that's something that could be done a little more easily uh, than indexing to inflation. But either way you cut it, uh, it really depends on how much you increase the tax. If you increase it substantially, then you'll have enough money for the foreseeable future. And if you don't, you won't. Another problem with the gas tax being relied on as a source of future investment is that as trucks and cars become more economically, I mean environmentally efficient, they use less gas. Therefore, the tax would either stall or the money from the tax would either stall or go down the more efficient our vehicles become. Well, there's that. And, uh, you know, it's, you know it, it, that's a long-term problem, right? Um, that uh, that we're, we're going to be, especially with CAFE standards kicking in, we're going to be using less gasoline. And that's a structural problem with trying to depend on gasoline as a source of revenue for our transportation investments. Um, and we do have to address that. But in the short term, and I'm talking about the next 10 years, that's not really the issue. The issue is that we've got a gas tax that has been stagnant since 1993. Costs have gone up. Inflation has gone up, and we haven't addressed that. Um, so it's much more of a political issue right now than anything else. You could get around, could you not, with a mileage-based fee? Would that be a suitable alternative? Well, the problem with the mileage-based fee is that when it comes to the federal government, um, and I think this has only been exacerbated in the wake of the Edward Snowden and NSA uh, scandal, uh, the federal government is not looked upon as a trusted source when it comes to uh, uh, knowing what you're doing and charging you on that basis. I, I don't think that there's going to be any member of Congress who's going to get up there and say the federal government should track how many miles you're driving and then charge you based on how many miles you're driving. Um, the best you could hope for is that some states would be able to implement uh, such a program and maybe the federal government could play a role. The states or, or, or metropolitan regions could implement such a program and the federal government could play a role in incentivizing the implementation of such a program. But the, the idea that the federal government is going to create a national vehicle miles traveled fee just seems very far-fetched to me. I don't, I don't think people are, are ready to accept that. And, and if you look at the evidence for how public officials have reacted to the concept of a federal VMT fee, I think that, that, that my thesis is borne out. I mean, there's been a lot of negative reaction to it whenever it's been brought up, both by the White House, which uh, which kind of slapped down Ray LaHood when he brought up the idea of even looking into it, 
And then from Congress, when some members of Congress were saying, we don't even want to do any research on this issue, which is a crucial issue when it comes to transportation funding. They said, no, we don't even do research on it. And that makes it harder even for the federal government to help states if states are trying to implement it. So it's a toxic issue um, that prevents us from really moving forward uh, in, in terms of trying to charge based on, on vehicles and vehicle miles traveled. Option number three, a multimodal freight fee. This addresses the issue that you referenced earlier, the uh, the apparent unfairness of basing a tax on trucking or on, on driving and then using it to fund all kinds of different modes of transportation. How uh, feasible is this concept of a multimodal fee, and how would it be assessed? I think this is the most promising option um, when it comes to funding a freight program, not because it'll be easy to do. I think it'll be challenging to do. I think that, first of all, you've got to get trucking and rail uh, in particular, but also other modes to agree on, okay, this is how we're going to assess the fee in a way that's fair for everybody. Um, and then, then that's not going to be easy. And then you have to uh, get them to agree on how you're going to spend it in a way that they feel like they're getting their fair share. So it's not, uh, it's not a trivial thing to do. But the reason that I like it and the reason that I think that has potential is that it is completely multimodal. It, and, and, and the most important priority from, from my perspective when it comes to trying to develop a freight fee is to develop a fee that could be distributed based on actual performance, based on actual outcomes. And you can't really do that if you're collecting only from one mode um, and that mode expects to get all the money back. Um, another thing I like about this is that it's not necessarily location-specific either. So right now with the gas tax, Everyone knows how much each state puts in, and everyone knows how much each state gets back uh, when, when it comes to their gas taxes. And that creates a problem in Congress where every state is fighting for the biggest share possible based on its return, so based on how much money it's putting in. Now, under any system, you're going to have states fighting for the biggest share possible. But the difference is that if you had a fee like this, a, a multimodal fee on freight, it would not be regionally specific. You wouldn't be able to say, well, this was collected from Montana, therefore Montana should get it back, uh, because the freight would be traveling over long distances, obviously, and could be, would, would have to go to, uh, to numerous states if you were going to try to return it to where it came from. And I think that fact makes this fee a formula for better investment decisions, because instead of looking at trying to distribute it based on where it came from, you're going to have to look at how to distribute it based on where it could provide the greatest economic returns, where the greatest need is in terms of transportation investment and freight investment in particular. So there's a lot to like about it. The biggest challenge um, beyond the ones I've described that are, that are primarily political challenges and, and challenges with stakeholders, the other biggest tra- challenge may be a technical one of trying to figure out how do we do this uh, in a way that accounts for all the freight that's available because there's not every not every uh, uh, piece of freight that's moved in this country has a waybill associated with it. So if you want to do a waybill fee, that may not necessarily work uh, to to capture the, the true market out there. And and every form you might come up with for a multimodal f- uh, uh, fee on freight has some problem associated with it that has to be overcome. So it's going to take a lot of work and effort to develop a fee like this that could work. But I think that the payoff will be worth it because when you're done you'll have a fee that can be used to actually make really smart and targeted freight investments. 
you also seem to be somewhat open to the possibility of just drawing on general fund revenues to fund transportation. Is that true? Well, yes. Uh, The reason that general funds make sense uh, is that um, transportation makes a substantial contribution to the general economy. It's a substantial portion of GDP. Our economy can't function without it, and particularly freight transportation. Everybody benefits from freight transportation. You know, you could argue, well, I don't drive, so I don't need highways and I don't need roads. I think that's a weak argument, but you could try to make that argument. Nobody can argue that they don't need freight. Everybody needs freight. And that, therefore, there's a logic to having general funds pay for freight. And if you look at how other countries fund their transportation systems, they don't typically have dedicated user fees. They typically use general funds to fund their transportation networks because they see that there's a benefit to the general public from having an effective transportation network. It's just seen as another service like defense that the the national government needs to provide for everyone's benefit. And so everyone pays in and everyone benefits, and and that works out okay. Um, The other thing that general funds has going for it is that if you look at where we have had the most effective transportation programs um, in our recent history, they've been general fund programs or at least they've been programs that are not derived directly from user fees. So one example we already talked about, which is the TIGER program. You know, the TIGER program is the best program in recent history in terms of allocating money based on performance, based on outcomes. Uh, formula programs don't do that, and most money that's comes from, that comes from user fees is distributed by formula. Over 80% is distributed by formula, and that uh, does not allocate money to where it's needed most. So general funds have the advantage of being able to target uh, resources more effectively, and Tiger demonstrated that. Another example was the Urban Partnership Agreements, which was a program under uh, the Bush administration, and Mary Peters was was the secretary. And they gave out money for um, urban areas. This was for public transit, actually. They gave out money for public transit investment based on whether urban areas were implementing um, effective demand management schemes on their highways. And that program would not have been possible under a dedicated user fee program because you can't make those kinds of discretionary judgments under a user fee program where people are expecting to pay money in and get that money back. That's what the trucking associations are expecting when they say let's increase the diesel taxes, that they're going to pay that money in and it's going to be invested in the system that they use. This is very different. This is saying where do we make the investments that everybody can benefit from. And once you're talking about everybody benefiting, then it makes sense that everybody should pay. And that's why general funds tends to be a more effective means of funding such a program. Okay, so based on your assessment of the political climate in Washington right now, a lame duck administration, a Congress that is still kind of a mess in terms of getting anything done, what are the chances of, number one, the issue of paying for transportation even being addressed in 2014? And what are the chances of it being solved? Well, I think it'll be addressed in 2014. I think everyone's itching to address it. Um, you know, the people who've been working on this issue have been dealing with this funding problem for so long and been you know, been gnashing their teeth over it for so long uh, that uh, you can smell when there's a chance to actually address it. And there hasn't been a chance like this to address it in a long time um, because under the Bush administration, 
It was a very clear directive directly from the president that said we're not going to increase the gas tax. And uh, that basically made everyone say, okay, well, since we can't increase the gas tax, let's just wait until the next president comes in and then we'll try again. And when the next president came in, there was a tremendous recession and a promise from that president that he wouldn't raise taxes on the middle class during a recession. And everyone and, and he made it very clear that he wouldn't do that. And everyone said, okay, well, you know, let's just wait until the recession's over, and then we can go back and try to increase the gas tax. And now we finally have the circumstances under which a conversation about revenue could result in fruit. And I think people realize that because the, the economy is not in a, in a tremendous uh, downswing anymore. The president is not ideologically opposed to increasing revenue in order to invest in infrastructure. In fact, he's made it very clear over the last five years that infrastructure investment is one of his priorities. And so it'd be surprising to see him oppose a new revenue source for infrastructure investment. Um, and finally, you have a Congress that for the first time in years has started to show some signs of realizing that they need to work together in order to solve some of these problems. And there's been tremendous gridlock and tremendous frustration in Washington over the last couple of years. But in some ways, it came to a head in the fall of 2013. And there's hope, I think, in, in, in Washington, D.C., that the worst of it is over uh, and that there's a window of opportunity between now and the start of the, the 2014 election season, which is September, to really talk about this and make some progress on it. Now, that said, I don't think we're going to get a funding resolution this year. Things don't happen that quickly in Congress. Nobody, no member of Congress is looking to go back to their constituents in an election year and say, hey, look, I just increased your taxes in order to make infrastructure investments. But the stage could be set this year, in 2014, for uh, some kind of initiative in 2015 that could really, uh, to, could really raise the revenue, could really make a difference. And we've seen this before. The last couple years of an administration – um, after the, the congressional elections, sometimes you do see real progress because that's a time where people are done fighting that last battle and are focused on uh, trying to get some things done uh, under the radar, and this could be one of those things. Well, I'm going to take that as a positive note on which to end our discussion. Joshua Shank, thank you so much for taking the time with us to outline all the possibilities out there and give us a picture of what might happen in the coming year in transportation infrastructure funding. Thanks very much for being with us. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. That was Joshua Shank of the Eno Center for Transportation. Thank you for listening. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch nearly 2,000 videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. See you next time.